Hi everyone, welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, What You Need to Know to Prepare Your Organization for Electrical Compliance, NFPA 70E, sponsored by Honeywell Salisbury. My name is Kevin Drulli. I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health Magazine, and I will be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first I want to go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speaker and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the Council or Magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as it's possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speaker. For basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button located on your screen. At the end of the webcast, you will be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. I will let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. With that, we'll go ahead and get started. Our speaker today will be Brian McCauley. Brian is the business leader for Salisbury Assessment Solutions, a division of Honeywell Industrial Safety, and oversees an emerging business in an emerging market as customers increasingly seek solutions to NFPA 70E compliance for their electrical safety needs. Brian has been with Honeywell Salisbury for 13 years and played a key role in the integration process when Honeywell acquired Salisbury in 2008. Brian has presented for Fortune 500 companies and also speaks at national conferences. Again, we thank all of you for tuning into this presentation. And Brian, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. All right. Well, thank you so much for that great introduction. Um, so good morning to the folks on the West Coast and uh, good afternoon to the folks on the East Coast. Um, so today we'll be talking a little bit about electrical safety, and uh, as was mentioned, if you do have questions, please submit them. We may not get to them all, but I'll be sure to make sure that myself or the team follows up so we can make sure we get all those answers back to you. Um, so, so the first slide here we'll take a look at here is just the agenda. <clears throat> so why is this uh, topic so important? We'll talk a little bit about that. Um, get into the general statistics. Um, show a few images in regards to electrical safety and, and maybe some of the incidents that we've seen. Um, also, we'll talk a little bit about NFPA 70E. Where are we at with that right now? Um, you know, 2018's edition is what we hear is coming down the road. Um, so I'll have some updates on that and then, you know, where we are today. Um, also, I'll get into electrical personal protective equipment and uh, also some innovation that we're seeing out in the marketplace. And then, as we mentioned, we'll take a few minutes towards the end of this uh, webinar to, to answer any questions that we can. <clears throat> So I always like to start out because I think it's pretty important and also very interesting is, is this whole electricity thing. Where did it all come from? I always like to talk a little bit about the historical side of it because it is a pretty interesting story. So we've all heard the story of Ben Franklin with the kite and the key. Um, and, and quite honestly, that's really when, the time frame anyway, from a year standpoint, in about the 1740s, when we began to see some of this uh, come across. And so people began to learn more about it, get more educated about it. And it was about 140 years later that uh, Thomas Edison actually patented the light bulb. Um, over the next two decades, um, Samuel Insel started the power grid. And uh, really, if you, if you read some historical books and hear what people have to say, they pretty much say that Thomas Edison wired Manhattan and uh, Samuel Insel wired uh, Chicago. So that's pretty much where this all started. Um, and, and interestingly enough, back in those days, people thought Edison and Insull were just crazy in the sense that uh, they thought, why wouldn't you just put a generator in every building instead of all these wires all over the place? I and mean, they were kind of thinking of furnaces that they had in their, in their homes and things like that. Um, but that's where we are today, and obviously they were, they were on the right track. Interestingly enough, if you look at the global population, there is 16% of the population that does not have electricity today. So I guess you could say there's still a little bit more work to do out there. All right, so I always like to talk about where we are from a safety standpoint, because that's really why we're here today. And, and I always like to reflect on where we were back in the day. So if you take a look at this handbook here, this is a, a copy of the American Electrician's Handbook from 1942. 
And what I'll do is I'll enlarge this. I mean, even when I do this presentation, these are really small words. So I don't expect for you to be able to read these. So I'll read these aloud for you. But here's, here's section 90. Um, section 90, and, and again, remember this is 1942. Section 90 states, electricians often test the, um, the uh, test circuits for the presence of voltage by touching the conductors with the fingers. This method is safe where the voltage does not exceed 250 volts and is often very convenient for locating a blown out fuse or for ascertaining whether or not a circuit is alive. You've got to be kidding me here, right? Um, some men can endure the electric shock that results without discomfort, whereas others cannot. So interestingly enough, I guess, uh, you know, if, you, if you're finding some discomfort, which I can't imagine you're not, um, you might need to find yourself a different industry to work in. That is uh, for sure. Um, section 91, if you can believe it, it gets, uh, it gets better. So section 91, the presence of low voltage can be determined by tasting. Okay, now for sure you've got to be kidding me, right? <coughs> um, the the uh, method is feasible only where the pressure is but a few volts, so thank goodness they have that in there. Um, but where the uh, uh, sensation is actually felt, and it actually talks about it in there, you can actually read it right there. It says, uh, where the two sides of the circuit are held a short distance apart on the tongue, a mildly burning sensation results, which will never be forgotten. Unbelievable, right? So back in the 1940s, if you were working on electricity in any way, shape, or form, this is the manual that you're most likely looking at to learn how to do it. And you're out there, and you're touching, and you're tasting, which today would be very, very dangerous, and it was dangerous back in those days. <clears throat> so moving forward, looking at where we are today, here's a copy of the American Electrician's Handbook that's up to date and is present. And thank goodness we have this book, which has been very much updated from 1940, uh, 1942, but also all of the personal protective equipment and all of the policies have really been updated over the last, what is that, uh, 80 years or so. Um, so now we have an insulated rubber gloves, and we've got face shields, and we've got our flash, you know, personal protective equipment and insulated tools that you see the worker using there in the middle there. So a lot of personal protective equipment, along with policies and procedures, are in place today, thank goodness, to keep our employees safe. So, you know, what are the electrical hazards? And, and really, at the end of the day, there's, there's three that we all need to be aware of. And then, and then we'll talk a little bit about what we need to be doing. Um, but in regards to electric shock, I mean, that's number one. Uh, that's when uh, electrical current enters and exits the body, creating that path. Uh, then there's the arc flash, and I think we're all familiar with arc flash by now. Um, it's that dangerous condition associated with the release of energy caused by the electric arc. Um, now, this can actually include electromagnetic energy, plasma, fragments, and the spray of molten materials. So if you take a look at the picture there, you can see there's an electrician that, uh, or a technician that might be just melt down, um, and you can see just completely uh, encumbered with a, an arc flash, because you can see that molten metal, plasma, just sprayed pretty much all around them. The last hazard that we'll talk about is, is arc blast, and that's really that pressure wave that's caused by the expansion of gases conducting materials, and then you've got the flying debris, the flying molten materials that, that are coming at you at these extreme velocities, which can be extremely hazardous. <coughs> so a little bit more on arc blast, um, and the reason I wanted to talk a little bit more about this is because I do see this as, as quite a hazard, and sometimes it's just misunderstood in the, in the marketplace, because when it comes to PPE, the PPE really is there to measure the incident energy rating the arc thermal protection value, which is really related more to the arc flash. The PPE isn't really there to help you with the arc blast size, side of things. So, you know, in, in instances, arc, arc flashes can actually create a blast in excess of 2,000 pounds per square foot. So there's been all these investigations done. Obviously, once uh, something happens, an incident, there's an investigation that takes place, <clears throat> regardless if it's an injury or a fatality or what have you. And if you'll look through these investigations, it's interesting because you'll see notes in there that talks about the blast. And typically what you'll find is it may be, for example, a panel room that might be 10 by 10, a relatively small room, but wherever the panel that the arc flash took place will easily move somebody across the room. And literally you can see an imprint of the human body in the sheetrock on the wall adjacent. So there's a lot of power behind that blast, a lot of energy, um, and, and definitely something we all want to make sure that we're very much aware of. Um, the arc blast can actually cause collateral damage, and that goes to what I was talking about earlier with that flying debris, that molten metal. Um, and I always like to share a story um, about uh, an incident, and, and it was a very, very close call. The person was very, very fortunate. Obviously, won't tell the customer, but it was up in the Northeast, 
Then there was a person working on a 53 cal piece of equipment and they were wearing a 55 cal Salisbury suit. Um, so what ended up happening, and I'll make the, the story short, the arc flash took place and uh, the individual ended up getting a second degree burn. And what that means is that the suit performed exactly as it should have performed. Those suits are tested so that the wearer will get no more than a second degree burn. So you could argue that that suit clearly saved his life. Um, on the other hand though, the molten material at a 53 cal uh, arc flash caused a piece of uh, flying debris, molten material, what have you. Um, it was a piece of shrapnel and it just ejected off of the equipment at, at a very high magnitude and literally cut the face shield from the top left part of his face shield all the way across to the bottom right. Now, if you think about it, had that projectile come out at, you know, two degrees to the left, that would have been a blunt hit right to the head, and most likely he would not have survived that. So something to definitely think about, and obviously he, uh, he was very, very fortunate in, in what occurred. <coughs> all right, so what causes an arc flash? And I get this question quite a bit. Um, so we all know just back from grammar school, electricity, usually we'll find the path of least resistance. Um, so if that path does get interrupted, <clears throat> there could be an arc flash that's generated. And really, at the end of the day, there's three main areas that I've outlined where we, we, these are most common, at least in my opinion. I mean, first, you've got me mechanical breakdown, you've got failure, which leads to the importance of just making sure that our electrical equipment, that our facilities are being maintained properly. <clears throat> Again, not, not sharing any customer names, but we were on a uh, customer site not long ago. And we opened up uh, some of their panels and looked inside, and there was literally dust that was four to six inches deep at the bottom. And uh, the uh, professional engineer who was on the job did the right thing and pretty much closed the door and said, you know, I just don't, I don't think I'm comfortable going any further until some of this gets cleaned up and addressed. Because obviously that could, could be very hazardous. Um, so believe it or not, they were able to do that overnight. He came back the next day and got everything taken care of. But it just goes to show that it's important not to overlook areas like that. Make sure your equipment's maintained and make sure uh, everything's taken care of. Um, current overload, we all know that equipment is designed for certain specifications and, and certain amounts of current, um, but we all are in situations where our plants are, are growing and we're building, uh, you know, more and more uh, to, to, you know, hopefully help with customer demand. So, you know, just make sure that we're all aware of what our equipment's designed to do and let's make sure we're working the right engineering, electrical engineering design channels to make sure that we're uh, building in however we need to to make that equipment function properly because you don't want to put too much stress on a piece of equipment that could lead to overload. Um, but finally, maybe the most important and the reason we're here is just from a safety standpoint, which could lead to accidental contact. And I'll, I'll talk about two stories that I'm, I'm familiar with, and again, leaving customer names out, but we'll call the first individual Joe Blow. And we all have a Joe Blow in our facility or in our plant somewhere. And it's this individual that has a keychain with like 50 to 60 keys on it. And somehow, some way, he knows exactly where every single key goes. Um, but in this case, Joe Blow had, to, had a keychain, and it was just long enough so he could walk up to the door and open the door without ever having to, you know, pull the keychain away. I mean, it hung, you know, 12 to 18 inches down, that type of thing. So it made it very convenient for going in all the doors that he had keys for. Um, but in this instance, he was working uh, a little bit too close to some electrical equipment. And a little background, this, this, this company had never done an arc flash assessment never done an arc flash study, so they weren't familiar with what the arc flash boundaries were. So Joe Blow had no idea where he should be standing and, and you know, when he needed to gear up with PPE, that type of thing. So he was just standing way too close to the equipment while it was exposed. <clears throat> Somebody called his name from across the plant, as, as they do probably every five minutes for a guy like Joe, and he turned around, and as he did that, the momentum of the keychain swung right into the exposed gear, caused an arc flash. Now Joe was wearing 65, 35, polyester cotton blend he was not wearing the proper ppe and he was on fire from head to toe you know obviously ended up with some pretty severe injuries from that definitely could have been avoided had he had the proper ppe or had an arc flash assessment been done he might have been educated on what he needed to be doing in that scenario um, one last story i'll share is, is just shift changes i mean we're all familiar with shift one shift two even sometimes shift threes for for overnight that type of thing uh, but it was a Friday, and, and, and the technician off shift one hadn't quite completed a job. So the uh, technician from shift two decided that he would go help, um, you know, Kevin out. We'll call him Kevin. So he goes in, 
and um, he, he begins the work. And uh, as he as he starts to approach the equipment, he opens up the panel as, as he should. And just the vibration of opening up that panel caused a screwdriver that Kevin from the first shift had left um, that he had completely just forgotten about. I mean, it was Friday. Kevin was probably thinking about what he was going to do when he got off work, thinking about where he was going to take his family to dinner, that type of thing. Left the screwdriver there. As the technician from the second shift opened up the panel, that screwdriver fell, went bing, bing, bam, arc flash took place. Now this individual was on fire from head to toe, was not wearing the proper PPE that he needed to be wearing for that, uh, for that instance. So, you know, these, these types of things can be avoided. Obviously, an arc flash assessment, which we'll talk about just a little bit, is a great place to start because it educates people on what's needed and when it's needed, all that type of fun stuff. And then just electrical safety training is very important because things like that will really help people stay intact on what they need to be doing when they're working on their, their job. All right, so as we go to the next slide here, I told you I talked a little bit about statistics. I'm not going to take too much time on this slide, but 80% uh, of all electrical injuries are, are really the result of someone not wearing the proper PPE. And by not wearing the proper PPE, that's what causes the ignition, and that's what causes the severe injuries. So if you're wearing polyester or maybe even 100% cotton that's not treated, um, you're in big, big trouble. Polyester, cotton blends, things like that. You, for, so, so let's make sure that when we are working anything in the electrical world that we're using some type of arc flash rated clothing. Um, 1.2 cal e equates to a second degree burn on human skin. And that's a very important figure to keep in mind because that's really where the arc flash boundaries, which we'll talk about in just a bit, dim from. Um, so arc temperature can reach 35,000 degrees. I've been told that it's the hottest um, a thing that's on Earth, believe it or not. So crazy to think about that. That's four times hotter than the surface of the sun, and, and that's what we're up against. You know, and fatalities have been known to still occur at distances 10 feet and over from the source of the arc flash. So we're talking about a pretty high magnitude, pretty high, uh, high risk event. And at the bottom here, over 2,000 people are sent to burn centers each year with severe electrical burns. So first and foremost, I've actually talked to some of these people. I've met some of these people throughout the years. Um, one of the greatest things that I'll, I'll always remember is all the times I'm, I'm out with customers and someone will come up and say, hey, I just want to say Salisbury saved my life, and they'll walk me through the scenario of exactly what happened. And it just gives me chills each and every time. But there's the other cases where maybe uh, folks just were not prepared, and uh, they end up you know, having, having to go through to burn centers, and, and really it does change their life forever. And hearing their stories, I mean, they're truly, truly heroes. And I'm sure some of the folks on this uh, webinar today are, are very familiar with some folks out there, um, if not, you know, have been part of it themselves. But there's also another piece to it, and that, and that is the cost of the bottom line for, for your organization. So the average time spent in a burn center when someone suffers an electrically uh, induced burn is 26 days. And if you see the, the parentheses there, per day it's $10,000 because it's, it's just a little different than your, your typical hospital room. This is a germ-free environment. It's, it's a burn center. There's a lot of focus that goes into that. Um, and $10,000 a day times 26 is a quarter of a million dollars right there. Um, and that doesn't even include the skin graft and the surgeries and the rehab and things like that. So these injuries can be very, very expensive. And not that it's about the dollar. It's about keeping our folks safe. Um, but, you know, doing the right thing can prevent all of the above. So if you look at the next slide here, just the last slide I have on statistics, you'll see, you know, why is this such a concern? Well, 97% of electricians have been shocked or injured on the job. And I was doing this presentation just recently, um, trying to remember where I was. It was in San Francisco, and somebody had uh, come up to me after and said, you know, if 3% haven't been shocked or injured on the job, that just means they're not working. So there I am thinking, well, maybe we've got a shot here that this 3% is doing something right, and then uh, that pretty much killed that. So um, definitely something we want to make sure our, our electricians, our technicians are properly trained and making sure they're properly following our procedures and, and policies. Um, if you kind of go down to the bottom there, medical costs for severe electrical burns can exceed $4 million per person. And that goes back to the example I mentioned earlier. I mean, 26 days in a burn center is a quarter of a million dollars, but then you start talking about <clears throat> skin grafts, surgeries, things like that, and it just really does add up quickly. And don't forget about the loss of productivity, potential equipment costs that uh, you might have to replace or, or you know, get fixed, that type of thing when an arc flash occurs, and then the downtime and all, all that fun stuff that mixes into it. So 
um, it, it definitely can be costly and, and something that we want to do anything we can uh, to avoid. Here's uh, just one last slide I think I have on statistics, but just kind of breaks down from the U.S. Uh, uh, Bureau of Labor um, how many injuries we're seeing a year. And you can see 4,000 electrical contact injuries that are non-disabling occur each year, but 3,600 electrical contact injuries occur each year that are disabling. And then the third one to the right there, if you'll look, it says 365 people are electrocuted each year. And that, uh, that's a scary one because that's literally one and a half a day if you think about, you know, weekends, not working, holidays, that type of stuff. Um, just, just too high, right? All right, so if we go to the next slide here, you'll, you'll see, you know, some pictures of families. And I think all of us would agree that we want our employees to come into the office at 8 o'clock or whenever it is they arrive and leave in the exact same condition that they arrived in, right? Because we want them to be able to get back to their families and, um, and, and be the dad and, and be the mom that they are. So, so some of the pictures I'm sharing with you here are, are graphics. So I just want to give you guys a little bit of a heads up that some of this stuff might be coming. But there's a story behind each and every one of these that I'll share, and it, it can be very helpful. This one here is an, an image of an individual, and a lot of you guys have seen these slides, so I'll make sure I, I provide the source. It's OSHA.gov. OSHA.gov is an incredible site in the sense that they do have some images on their website. And not only that, but they tell the story of exactly what happened, the, the after fact, everything. Um, and, and that can be really helpful if you're doing internal training uh, with your teams or in your facility because those stories will really get, uh, get their attention and they're very eye-opening. But in this, in this instance here, you can see that this individual has their right cheek kind of facing us here and um, obviously was wearing some safety glasses, maybe even some protection there, but most likely safety glasses. So it looked like that part of their face or head was avoided from a burn injury. Um, but you can see the right cheek has definitely got some injury there, some burn injury. And then you can see the specs. And the specs are another issue. So whenever you have an arc blast or an arc flash take place, copper is actually part of that equipment makeup. And when you're talking about 35,000 degrees, copper breaks down very quickly and can expand. And copper can actually expand up to 67,000 times per second. So the enormous amount of energy as copper is flying through the air um, is another uh, risk altogether. And what we're looking at here on his right cheek is just those specks of copper. So not only is he in the burn center dealing with this injury, now there's one more step that the doctors and medical staff will have to do, and that's to go in and remove those copper fragments from the side of his head. So a whole other issue there for this individual as, um, as he tries to recover in the burn center. This next image here actually did result in a fatality, so I apologize for that, but it, it's, a, it's a crazy story and what, what ended up happening. So this individual, from what I was told, was in a bucket truck, and um, he had not put on his own insulated rubber gloves yet. The bucket truck was being raised up. It got to the top, and somehow, some way, and he wasn't going to fall out of the bucket but he just lost his balance. So as a reflex, you know, we would probably all do this. You know, you just put your arm up or something like that to kind of help your balance. And um, above his head was a high power line. And you can see that he made contact with that line right through his hand and the uh, electricity flowed right through his body. And anytime the energy or electricity flows through your heart or lungs, it's usually not a good story. And I believe that's what took place here. But had he been wearing the insulated rubber gloves um, and had them on when he had gotten into the bucket truck, uh, he would have been okay. So that just stresses the importance of the proper PPE here. Um, this next image here, another one right off of OSHA.gov, actually just talks about touch and step potential. And so in this instance, um, this individual reached out, made contact. The energy actually flowed all the way through this individual's body. Now, this individual was lucky but at the same time, not lucky, and I'll tell you why. So it was lucky in the sense that the current flowed through his body, exited out his foot, but did not go through his heart or lungs. So he was okay in the sense that, you know, he was able to recover. Um, but as the energy exited out his, um, I guess that would be his right foot, um, there was massive internal injuries inside that foot, which really just aren't visible from this picture. Um, and, and literally, it was uh, amputated just a few days after the event. So he ended up losing that right foot. All right, so this next picture here just shows uh, an electrical flash burn. And people ask all the time, you know, your hands are usually the closest part of your body to the electrical equipment. So in the event of an arc flash, are you 
going to be okay? Are your hands going to be okay? And, you know, we, we have never, we've been making gloves for decades and decades and decades, and we've never had a case of someone wearing their insulated rubber gloves with leather protectors on top, which is the standard, um, and had an issue with that. Now, we've gotten a lot of folks tell us, hey, here are pictures of my insulated rubber gloves and leather protectors after an arc flash, and it's incredible the damage, but enough to sustain that there's no injuries to the hands. But in this case, um, you can see this person was not wearing any type of protection, no insulated rubber gloves, no leather protectors, and you're seeing a lot of swelling, black digits, that type of thing. Again, insulated rubber gloves with leather protectors on top would have uh, eliminated this. So I have, I have one more image, and it is the um, most uh, uh, tough image to see, so I'll give you a little heads up before I flip it. Um, but it is the last image. And this one here just kind of shows an individual working through a burn cleaner trying to get better, um, but also talks about, you know, the, the pain and the agony that they actually do go through. So you can see the picture on the left was taken immediately after this patient was actually admitted. The picture on the right was taken eight days later. So if you can imagine being in a burn center, having the conversation with the medical staff saying, I think we have to amputate your left arm. I think we have to amputate your left arm. And the patient's saying, I'll do whatever it takes. Please don't amputate my left arm. And eight days later, this is what we're looking at here. So, it, you know, I don't know the outcome of this scenario, but I've had medical folks within some of the trains I've done, and they, they pretty much said it doesn't look promising. So not sure exactly what happened, but you can just kind of see the fight and, and the agony and the pain that these individuals have to go through when they're in the burn centers for these electrical burns. All right, so changing gears just a little bit here. Um, and again, not, not giving any customer names out, but we, uh, we dealt with two customers. One was in Boston and one was in Miami. So the first one we'll talk about is, is this Boston facility. So they were into heavy manufacturing. They had about 210 square feet. And it just kind of shows the investment that they made in their electrical safety program over a total period of five years. So you can see they did an arc flash study or an electrical assessment there, and it was about $43,000. They had done training. They had purchased uh, electrical personal protective equipment. They also were working uh, with us um, from an engineering standpoint to just make updates to their one-line diagrams, their models, things like that, over a period of five years. So that cost wasn't too too much. But the total spend over a five-year period was about eighty-seven thousand um, dollars, or seventeen thousand dollars a year, which is not too bad. But the deliverable that you want when you're making this investment is no electrical injury recordables, right? Or no recordables over a five-year stand. So they can actually say that, that you know, they had a pretty clean slate over that time, but it, it goes to show that they made the investment to have that happen. Now, if you look at the facility in Miami, very, very similar facility, only 15,000 square feet less, still in the heavy manufacturing, still getting very similar. They um, did not have a written, up, or they did not have an updated written electrical safety program that was in place. Um, they had done some electrical training, so that was good, but they did not complete an arc flash study or an electrical assessment. So, again, it goes back to the whole story with Joe Blow and the keychain. I mean, without those labels on the equipment, Joe Blow wouldn't know exactly what he needs to be wearing or how close he can get to the equipment before he needs to make sure he's suited up. Um, so what happened here in this case was in 2012, a maintenance worker was uh, assisting with an electrical application, similar to the Joe Blow story, and he was just standing too close to the equipment. <coughs> he was not wearing any uh, PPE for our flash. And what ended up happening was inadvertent contact was made, and uh, he was on fire from head to toe. Again, he was wearing a 65-35 polyester cotton blend. Um, so, uh, you know, he was stopping, dropping, and rolling, but it was not getting the flames out as quickly as he would have liked, and he did face some severe burn injuries throughout his body. So over that period of time, which goes about three years, he, um, he faced extensive surgeries, he, skin grafts, therapy was performed. Literally, this has changed his life. I mean, we can all tell by reading this. And then as of last year, the latest update I had was that this individual had not been back to work. And that's very common. We see these videos, if we Google, you know, go to YouTube, we see these arc flash videos all the time, and, and most of the stories we hear of these individuals never made it back to work. I mean, the recovery is, is unbelievable what they have to go through. So, so that's one piece of it, and, and maybe the most important piece is, is how it affects folks' lives. But the second part is the cost. And, and the total cost of this manufacturing facility in Miami was $5.8 million over a five-year span. 
or 1.16 million. So it's an, it's an interesting example to share because you got one company that kind of did everything right and they spent you know, about 17,000 a year, which isn't too bad. You have another company that was maybe potentially taking shortcuts or just didn't quite make this the priority and it really came down hard uh, once this incident took, took place. Okay, so we'll take a little bit of time and talk about standards um, and definitely not gonna spend too much time on this. But I do want to get a little bit into NFPA 70E, talk about where we are with 2018 um, and all that fun stuff. But, but really, if you look at the electrical industry, there are just a few standards that you should probably be aware of. Well, first one's OSHA 29 CFR 1910. The next one would be the National Electric Code or NEC. Then you've got NFPA 70E. And right now, we're utilizing the 2015 edition, um, waiting for the 18 to get finalized, which I'll talk about shortly. And then... The last one there is the various ASTM requirements. And the ASTM requirements really apply mostly to the ArcFlash um, protective, uh, personal protective equipment. So, so when you see that out there, and whether that's ArcFlash or even electrical safety, uh, ASTM is really the, the testing group behind, making sure that everything is, is in the marketplace and, and serving the purpose that the, uh, the product is supposed to be serving. But it also writes some compliance and things like that behind it as well, which we'll talk about in just a bit. One of those being um, the uh, insulated rubber gloves and how we test it and things like that. Um, but really does apply more to product. So if you look at this next slide here, here's a, just a brief example of OSHA 29 CFR 1910. I'm just gonna skip down to the bottom that says 1910.335, where it says OSHA requires employ employers to use alerting techniques. And they're an example, you know, safety signs, tags, barricades, attendance to warn and protect employees from hazards which could cause injury due to electric shock, burns, or failure of electric equipment parts. So, you know, we work with a lot of customers, and one customer in particular was a very large customer, and they were saying that whenever they do this, they set up barricades, they set up tables, they set up yellow tape. Um, the person from marketing or the receptionist from the front or the finance person will just walk right under the tape having no idea of the risk that they're putting themselves into by walking into that situation. Because obviously you've got panels that are open and in the event of an arc flash, that's taped off to keep people safe and out of that area because that could be well within the arc flash boundary. Um, so what they ended up doing was rolling out some um, electrical general, just general electrical safety awareness training. And we helped them do that. It was a very minimal cost, but folks like marketing, folks like in the finance group, everybody was taking these classes and it completely eliminated the problem. I mean, once you see these arc flashes and how powerful they are, and once you understand a little bit more about electricity and what these folks are doing when those panels are open, not only do you have a little bit more, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Obviously, the, the electricians have a lot more credibility within your facility after you learn a little bit more about what they're doing, um, but it's taken much more serious. Um, and then at the bottom, the NEC there, you can see that um, all of the equipment listed there, and it just says it in red, shall be field marked to warn qualified persons of potential electric arc flash hazards. So the last slide I have on compliance just has a little part out of NFPA 70E. And really, it's, it's an important one. That's why I have it in here. And a lot of questions get asked about it. So I figured I'd just kind of talk about it here. But really, it just says, you know, for an arc flash hazard assessment or electrical assessment, uh, that shall determine the arc flash boundary. It shall have the incident energy at the working distance and the personal protective equipment that people within the arc flash boundary shall use. Now, typically, that's all included on the arc flash label, which we'll talk about in just a bit. Um, but the arc flash hazard analysis, the other piece that we need to make sure we're all aware of, it, it needs to be updated every five years or unless you, you might have a major modification in your facility. So let's say you had a, a brand new line in or you're building out a wing or a very, very large piece of equipment is, is maybe installed. Those types of things can be major modifications and will have an impact on your arc flash study. So it's important to make sure that you are updating your arc flash study um, for those types of modifications. <clears throat> All right, so a lot of people always say, well, how does OSHA look at NFPA 78? I mean, are these guys in cahoots? Are they working together in any way, shape, or form? And right now, what you're looking at is a picture of David Wallace, and he's in the middle. Now, he is long retired, so while we're all working hard here on this uh, beautiful Thursday, uh, David probably is uh, on the uh, beaches of Hawaii, and the waves are hitting his toes right now. 
So congratulations to him. But he was a very good partner of, of Salisbury's uh, for a number of years. And um, he, uh, he was interviewed here just a few years ago. And the question was to David, and, and, and I just have it kind of broken down here in this next slide. And by the way, this is available. You can find it easily on the Internet. Just kind of look up David Wallace, and you will find it, but, uh, or OSHA, and it's W-A-L-O-I-S. Um, but he was really asked, what does OSHA look for when officers are in the field? Also, if issues are found where organizations lack compliance to an FPA 70, are they enforceable? So great question, right? So the way David answers that question is he says, hey, we can cite an employer for two things. We can cite them for violating the needed PPE requirements listed in 1910. Also, we will enforce 1910.335, which states the needed electrical PPE to be required for the electrical work in arc flash hazards. It must be industry practice to provide your employees this type of protection. And we can look to NFPA 70 in some cases, for example, with Ford Motor Company. Uh, the settlement agreement was Ford would adopt NFPA 70 in addressing the electrical compliance needed. And then if you go to the next slide here, NFPA 70 and OSHA. Um, so really, in, in summary, David says, if I was an employer and wanted to comply with a general requirement for protecting my employers from electric shock, the first place I'm going to look is in FPA 70E. <coughs> so over the past few years, and it's interesting, I've been in the industry almost 14 years, it, it's really interesting to see how OSHA has become a little bit more proactive when it comes to electrical. Their activity levels have picked up. Um, they have an OSHA top 10 most violated standards list. You can find those easily online. And three of the 10 are electrical. So they've definitely got more focus in this part of the industry than maybe ever before. And, and as a lot of you know on the, on, on the, on the, on the webinar here, because um, I know a lot of you guys are safety professionals, OSHA late last year um, put out a news release that they were actually increasing their fines by 78%. So, and this doesn't apply just to electrical, of course, but they are uh, definitely becoming more and more of a factor, it seems, in, uh, in the safety world. All right, so really what's needed for, for full electrical compliance? Well, you, you need to have a written electrical safety program. I mean, it's very important, whether it's Joe Blow or whether it's whoever it is in your facility, they need to make sure they're following the policies and the procedures that you have set forth for your, for your team. Um, you also need to make sure you have electrical safety training program in place. NFPA 70E says you've got to do it every three years. Most customers we work with, they do it every year, and, and I, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, it's important to make sure we're, we're keeping our teams flush, right? Um, you've got to make sure you're doing the arc flash assessment because at the end of the day, that will tell you exactly what your arc flash or your electrical hazards are. It will also identify the boundaries and all that uh, fun stuff. And then, and then the last piece of the puzzle, once you understand all of your risks, you need to make sure you have the proper electrical PPE in place for your team. Um, so as we switch gears to NFPA 70, I told you that'd be kind of my uh, last stop here on the standards. I always like to give a little history on NFPA 70. So, so really, this is going to be the 11th revision for NFPA 70 when we see the new version come out in 2018. Now, interestingly enough, um, our director of engineering, Jim Evans, he's on the board for NFPA 70. And, and last he had heard, there's a lot of debate, I guess, to say it nicely, um, or, or maybe a lot of work still left. Um, so all of a sudden we're hearing that maybe this 2018 version might just not be available when, when we thought it might be, which would have been about September, and then, you know, it would be definitely in place by January of, of 18. Um, so fingers still crossed. Don't know that for sure that anything will be delayed, but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to make sure that uh, 2018 timeline is hit. But interestingly enough, before 1982, I don't think anybody really understood what arc flash was. It wasn't really a major risk. And then it was um, Ralph Lee who actually did a study and realized that, you know, 80% of all of these injuries are from arc flash. So then that's when OSHA got on board. NFPA 70 was revised to include the calculations, um, the NFPA 70 boundaries, all that fun stuff. And then that's when we really started to get the momentum um, in, in regards to arc flash. Um, so real quick on the boundaries, as of 2015, and I think you guys are pretty familiar with this, the prohibited approach boundary was eliminated. So really the closest boundary at this point is most likely your restricted approach boundary. 
Um, and, and something that we all need to be aware of is, is with that restricted or post boundary, anytime we have someone that's going to cross that restricted or post boundary, which means they're most likely going to make contact with the equipment, they need to have a work permit. So just make sure that you have that updated in your, in your written electrical safety program and that you guys are following that. Um, the next one typically out is a limited approach boundary. And really that boundary just states that um, unqualified workers must be in PPE and they must be accompanied by a qualified worker in order to be within that boundary. But the most important boundary, at least the way I think of it, is because it's, and it's the R-class boundary. And the, way I, the reason I say it's most important is because anytime you cross this boundary, you are now exposing yourself to higher than 1.2 cal per centimeter squared. So if you'll go back to the earlier slides I mentioned, anything greater than 1.2 cal per centimeter squared is going to cause greater than a second-degree burn, or, you know, that's where a second-degree burn can take place. So anytime you expose yourself to a higher risk than that, you're, you're potentially exposing to a higher, you know, burn than a second-degree burn. And that's um, the, the exact moment that PP needs to be worn, because it's any time that you cross that 1.2 line, uh, that's where the R-flash boundary starts. So that's the importance of, of knowing when that boundary occurs, where that boundary is, and making sure your teams are suited up when they cross that R-flash boundary. Um, so, you know, a little bit more on boundaries, and I do get this question quite a bit, so I wanted to make sure I included it today, but people always ask, you know, about conductive articles and, and how they need to, you know, talk to their teams about this type of stuff. And here's right out of NFPA 70E, it states that uh, when it comes to conductive articles, they shall not be worn within the restrictor post boundary or when they present an electrical contact hazard. So anybody working pretty much within that restrictor post boundary or anybody, you know, like, for example, Joe Blow that has that keychain that hangs down, that's, that's definitely a uh, contact hazard. Uh, working space shall not be used for storage. I think everybody's pretty familiar with this, but I walk a lot of facilities. And, you know, I'm always real nice to make sure I just point out some areas that maybe a customer should, should address. But just make sure that, you know, the working space is, is not used for storage because uh, that's very important to permit safe operation around the electrical equipment. Um, insulated tools is another one that should be used when working within the restricted approach boundary. Um, that used to be the limited approach boundary, but now it's the restricted approach boundary. That was a change back in 2015. And then we talked about the barricades uh, earlier. Um, so just make sure that you're, you're putting those out and, and whether they're chairs, tape, whatever it might be, just keeping folks that are not qualified out of your working areas. <clears throat> Um, we talked a little bit about training just a few slides ago. Nothing really changed over the last few years in regards to training from 2012 to 2015. NFPA70 still says, hey, you've got to do it every three years. That's, that's pretty much the general rule that they have. But one thing that did change was the documentation and just talking about how it must be kept. Um, and, it, you know, just general information, more or less common sense, but they want to make sure that, you know, you're including names, the dates, the content of the class, um, and then also the employees must demonstrate the skill or the know-how. So make sure that if you if you are doing training, there's a test at the end, that type of stuff. So that way employees can prove that, that they are picking up the information. So, for example, whenever we do training, we do a test at the end to ensure that everyone, uh, you know, has followed along. <clears throat> we talked about the work permit requirements already. Um, and then the exemptions at the bottom there, as you can see, and, and, and again, I would, I would urge you to check your written electrical safety program because there's a very good chance that you guys might have been a little bit more stringent with the way you wrote about this. Uh, for example, Honeywell's um, electrical safety program is much more stringent than NFPA 70E. So we do have some different rules within our plan. Um, so I would encourage you to make sure you review your program. But as far as NFPA 70E goes, anytime you're doing testing, troubleshooting, <coughs> voltage measuring, that type of stuff, work permits may, you know, may be exempt. Um, and there's other areas there as well, thermography, um, access and egress to an area uh, where no electrical work is going to be performed, that type of thing. So again, I, I would urge you to sort of make sure you're reviewing your written electrical safety programs to make sure that this is um, true for you as well. All right, so something, uh, something that we've seen a big uptick in, and this is very good, is contractors. So when it comes to NFPA 70, what they stay, state is that sites are responsible for contractors or for, for providing contractors with hazard information. So that means when the contractor comes on site, and it kind of, I'll just sum this slide up, 
if you're aware of any hazards, just they're asking you to make sure that you have a documented conversation with that contractor so you got their interests, uh, you know, at, at heart there. So um, making sure you're having that conversation ahead of time. And, and something else that, that's ironic here is OSHA, about the same time, came out with an update as well and, and talking about how important it is to make sure that we're communicating with these, with these contractors. I think in the past there's been too many cases where contractors just go out really more or less unescorted and <clears throat> kind of free to do whatever. And what they're doing is encouraging the back and forth, not only from the contractor standpoint, from the customer standpoint as well, in, in interest of both parties. Um, so I think I, I just have a couple more slides on NFPA 70E, but one that one I always like to talk about is there are two different options to utilize when it comes to understanding what your hazards are within a facility. So you'll see here an example. You know, you can run the calculation procedures, which is what you know our engineering firm would do. They would provide the incident energy. You would know exactly what your cal rating would be for each and every piece of equipment within your site uh, or facility. But there are cases where uh, people might you know want to use the tables. And in some cases, the table might tell you that you need to be in PP category three, whereas we might run the study and have you somewhere between eight and 12 cal, which means you could easily wear the face shield on the right. <coughs> Excuse me. So if you kind of compare the two, the tables are always going to be a little more conservative. Um, but giving your team the choice between the beekeeper hood on the left or the <coughs> face shield on the right, I can assure you, most every time your team is going to pick the face shield on the right. So there are some advantages to making sure you're running those calculations to get the most accurate results for the uh, risks of your electrical equipment within your facility. All right, so here's just an example of a, of a label here. Um, and you can see I put at the bottom there, this label cannot be used. So one of the updates in 2015 was that a PPE um, categories and incident energy rating cannot both be put on the label. So what they're asking you to do is to make a choice. You can't do both. You can't use the tables and do the calculations. You have to do one or the other. And I believe that's a great idea because putting both on the label can cause some confusion for the worker. Um, so in this example, you can see it does say PP category one, but it also has an incident energy rating on the label and it can be very confusing. So just make sure that if uh, you've done a study in the past, that you're working to update those labels as you move forward and making sure you've got one or the other on there. Um, and then here's an example of just what we utilize for a, a danger uh, label. Um, and this is anything above 40 cal, where we actually will put a red danger tag on it, and we'll actually make sure we emphasize the fact that no um, uh, energized work should be uh, done here. Now, again, this is something that I will defer to our customers because you might have in your written electrical safety programs uh, a certain amount of, of risk that you'll be allowed your team to work on live, um, but this is typically what we use as a rule of thumb as far as uh, PPE uh, category four, or in this case, 90 cal per centimeter squared. All right, so I'm gonna switch gears just a little bit here and talk about a product, but before I do that, I mentioned earlier about our insulated rubber gloves and how it's the closest item, right, to the electrical equipment when an arc flash does take place. And so we have done a report over the years, and you can see uh, here's a copy of that report. Um, so if you're interested, be happy to get it to you, or you can reach out to anybody at Southbury and they can provide this. But it just talked about the arc flash rating that our insulated rubber gloves do have and the amount of protection that you're, you're going to have. And again, I'll go back to my original statement before. You know, we've been making gloves for decades and decades and decades and decades. We come right out of Charleston, South Carolina, and I can't think of one documented time when we've ever been approached by someone who has worn the glove the proper way um, with the leather protectors on top, of course, and had an issue um, in the event of an arc flash, which is great to hear. So obviously the protection is there and it's doing its job. So speaking of insulated rubber gloves, I mean, we, we all know safety products, right? So you've got fall protection in case you fall. You've got hearing protection in case there's a loud noise. You want to make sure you're protecting your ears. Safety glasses in case, you know, some debris, that type of thing. But rubber gloves are actually manufactured so you can grab a hazard. They're intentionally manufactured so you can grab a hazard. So it's interesting to think of them that way. But when you do think of it in that way, it's important to understand how important to, that we're always doing our visual inspections. So each and every time we put these gloves on, let's make sure we do a, a quick little air test. Let's make sure we look for abrasions. 
Because even a pinhole can leak enough um, electricity to cause harm. So it's always important to make sure we're also caring for our gloves um, and using them the proper way. And they, and they will last a long time if we're doing that. The other side is, is this is uh, an ASTM reference here, ASTM F496, right, section 7.1 um, uh, uh, there. But you can see that what we're saying here is that gloves need to be tested every six months. So I talk about this every time because there sometimes is, is a little bit of clarity that's needed. But whenever gloves are issued in the field um, and they're assigned to a worker, they need to be tested every six months. So a lot of the times what our customers will do is issue a, a pair of yellow gloves and then the next six months issue a pair of black gloves. And from a visual perspective, it makes it very easy because you can walk your plant and if someone's wearing yellow and everybody else is wearing black, you know that you know Joe Blow, for example, I'll pick on him again, hasn't sent his gloves in. Um, so it's an easy way from a visual perspective to keep up with your program. Um, but we also have some customers that actually uh, don't test their gloves. They actually just buy new gloves every six months. So I would encourage you to kind of just look at both options and, and kind of see what works best. And again, if you have questions, uh, we're here to help. Um, again, I, I put a slide here directly to this, but uh, and I've talked about it, but I can't emphasize how the importance of leather protectors and how important that they are. They're always to be worn on top of the insulated rubber gloves. As important as insulated rubber gloves are, the leather protectors protect the insulated rubber glove. So it's important to always have those leather protectors worn on top. Um, face shields, very important. Um, making sure that uh, you buy a face shield that meets the following standards from ANSI to ASTM. Um, people ask all the time, how do you care for these? I mean, you can always wash, uh, clean them with mild soap, uh, warm water. That's perfectly fine. But I would definitely encourage you to always keep them in, in the bags that they get shipped with um, or purchase a bag for them because, unfortunately, they get thrown into the back of the truck sometime and they get kind of deemed up and, and they can get scratched. But as long as they're in these types of bags, they'll keep them from getting scratched and they'll last for a very long time. Um, and then, you know, some new innovation. I told you I'd kind of finish out with that. This is a, a, a picture here of our lift front hood. So you can see it's a 40 cal hood that allows you to open up the hood when you step outside of the boundary. And then when you're stepping back into the boundary, just pop it back down. But really does offer a lot of comfort, increased visibility, and also a lot more airflow is able to get through. Now, there's no forced air in this system, but in testing, we haven't just, we had never just, or we've never seen that it needed uh, a forced air system because there's enough ventilation that can actually make its way through. So something to definitely look at if you haven't seen it before. Um, and then I think the last slide I have just on innovation is just our premium lightweight clothing that we have. I was just at a, uh, a show this past week in Nashville and, um, it was amazing. We had the old one next to this one right here, and you just you hold them up, you pick them up. It, it's just amazing to understand the differences. Uh, the new one's 40% lighter, and you can definitely tell much more breathable. So something else to look at out there if um, you're looking to kind of help keep your, your employees a little more comfortable. The last slide I have before we get to questions is, is just the electrical assessment, the R-Flash study. So obviously we do that. We'd be happy to help in any way, shape, or form that we can. But uh, if you're out there getting quotes, which I encourage you to do, make sure that uh, these other suppliers out there are, are providing you an updated set of one-line diagrams as a deliverable. Um, make sure that they're providing you a full system report, um, pointing out non-compliances and things like that as well. Make sure they're going to be around. Uh, you, you want somebody that's going to work with you for years and years and years. So you want to make sure that they can provide that ongoing support. And uh, make sure they've got some cybersecurity. Now, I know it may sound crazy, but... Some of that data you're paying for, you, uh, you don't want that to get lost or, or somehow corrupted by any way, shape, or form. So make sure that they uh, have a good way to keep that, uh, that data and that information safe and available to you at, at all times. And then, um, you know, just in kind of summary, um, you know, can they help you with that turnkey solution? So one of the things we can do is help with electrical safety programs, help with electrical assessments, help with training, help with PPE, um, and, you know, happy to help in any way we can. So at this point, um, I just really want to thank everybody for their time, and I will uh, turn it back over in case there's any questions. All right, excellent. Great job, Brian. Uh, thank you for your, your insights and expertise. Um, before we start the Q&A, just real quickly want to remind folks of the evaluation survey that we're asking you to complete. The survey should now be appearing on your screen, and your input is important because it will help us improve future webcasts. 
If you uh, don't happen to see the survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker. You may also access the survey by clicking the survey button near the lower right part of the screen. And now we will get on to some questions. Um, first one, does ArcFlash PPE differ between men and women? If so, what is the difference? Hmm, that's, a, that's a very good question. So I would say more or less if there are any differences, it would be in sizing. Um, for example, with uh, insulated rubber gloves, we do make some size 7s, which are really more for the female population because they're a little bit smaller and a little bit better fit. Um, but in regards to overall uh, protection, and ratings and things like that, there would be absolutely no different. Um, but one thing I would caution you on is that uh, when it comes to undergarments, you know, there are some things we want to make sure that the female side is aware of because um, you want to make sure that uh, they're wearing you know, proper undergarments to, to keep safe in the event of an arc flash. So just be aware of, of that. But in, in regards to the overall PPE side, really no difference other than the different sizes that might be available. All Great right, question. thank you. Um, next one, if we have facilities or parts of a facility without an arc flash analysis or arc flash risk assessment conducted and, contractor, and contractors come in to do electrical work, how can they do so safely, or should they be turning down the work? Oh, boy. You know, and that's a question I get um, very, very often, and that is a great, great question. Um, so, so I'll just give you the basics here. So really it comes down to the owner is inherently responsible for contractors that come on to their site. So with that being said, that, that might help kind of sway you one way or the other. Because um, I'll tell you, most of the time contractors are not going to pass up work. They're going to go in and do the job but you can only hope that they have the proper PPE. I would insist that if they do come on site, that you make sure they have um, PPE before they start working. So, so make sure that box is checked. But yeah, it, without doing the arc flash study or the electrical assessment, you, you are right. It's a can of worms because you're, you're, the contractor just isn't sure exactly what type of PPE is needed for the equipment. And um, so completing the arc flash assessment will sure help. It will answer those questions. Not only that, but they'll understand where the boundaries are They'll understand exactly what PPE needs to be worn. They'll understand the voltage, the, um, all that fun stuff. So I can't stress enough how important it is to, to potentially look at doing an arc flash study or, you know, worst case scenario, just, you know, trying to utilize the NFPA 70 tables um, under, you know, engineering supervision, of course, um, as, a, uh, as a starting point. Okay. Uh, next one. How can I best manage my insulating rubber glove program every six months? Should I retest every six months or just buy new gloves? Yeah, great question. So one I get uh, very often. So we have uh, customers who actually do both. We have some customers that will um, send their gloves in to test labs, and we have those available all across the country. Uh, they're obviously third parties. They're not connected with us in any way, shape, or form but they, um, they, they test all the rubber goods throughout the country. And, and there's quite a few of those. So if you'd like, uh, we can help you point or help point you into the direction of a few labs that might be in your local area. And then you can definitely price that out and, and see if that would be an option. But as another option, we do have customers that will just uh, rotate their gloves every uh, six months by just purchasing a new pair. Um, and, and again, I think I mentioned this earlier, but changing the color is just one of the easiest way to make sure that you're keeping everybody up to speed on the change out. And we have different color options. So maybe red for one you know, period of six months and then maybe changing to black for another six months is just a great way to make sure that everybody in your facility is following uh, the proper procedures. Okay, I think we've got time for, for one more question. Um, okay. I, I would prefer to train my team annually, but is, a classroom, is there a classroom course that you would suggest, or are there other types of training offerings? Uh, can you repeat the very beginning of that? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the beginning the, um, of the question. They'd prefer to train, I would prefer to train my team annually, but is there a classroom okay. course that you would suggest, or other types of training offerings? Sure, great question, and I'm, I'm really glad to hear the annual part, because I think that's important. Um, so so there's, a, there's a number of ways, and I think one of the things that we've done over the years is just offer very flexible training options for our customers. And I know there's other folks out there that do that as well, um, but we offer webinars which allow you know, flexibility of remote workers, but they can actually be interactive and ask questions to a professional engineer that's giving the webinar. We offer e-learning, um, but we also offer classroom training. So uh, quite honestly, I would leave it to the customer um, on what maybe best suits their team because there's a lot of options out there um, to get your team trained. 
Um, so I would, I would say, uh, you know, we'd be happy to help or, or take a look at, around at what's out there, but I know that you'll find something that meets your, meets your needs. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all today's unanswered questions will be forwarded on to our speakers. Once again, I hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey on your screen to give us your feedback. And that will end today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Brian McCauley, everyone at Honeywell Salisbury, and all of you who listened in. Thanks, and have a great day. Thank you.